What time is it? Hello and welcome to the Bible Dig Godcast, a fun-filled exploration of archaeology and the Bible. And now, here are your hosts, author J.S. Earls and attorney Peter A. Papoutsis. Zoo News continues. All right, Jeff, you sent me these two articles about uh, uh, two zoos mm-hmm. uh, in Egypt because we were talking about the, the the zoo in Egypt last time, and I was totally ripping on them. Uh-huh. Uh huh. But uh, yes, which, which I which I know, zoos in Egypt has everything to do with Bible dig. I know that, but I want to talk about them because I feel vindicated <laughs> in my ridicule. Of the zoos in Egypt, the first article that you sent me, <laughs> I, I I can't even believe what you sent me. And, and before Pete says this, I was going to post these things on the Bible Dig Facebook page because I felt like we were too hard on the zoos in Egypt uh, to kind of make <laughs> up for that. And then I checked out the most recent news from this year of the two main zoos in Egypt. <clears throat> and I found what Pete's about to share with you, <laughs> and, yeah. and decided yeah, we not to post them. Yeah, I think we were kind of kind of tame because, all right. So the first zoo, the one that's in Giza or somewhere around Giza, yeah, it's the headline, and this is from the BBC, BBC News, okay, and it says Egypt Zoo accused of painting donkey to look like a zebra, <laughs> and it has a picture. And uh, let me tell you, if this is the picture. If this picture is like authentic, oh yeah, this is the this is the worst paint job that anybody has ever done to make a donkey look like a zebra. First off, it's 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 just wrong. It is just that's false advertising, okay? Um, and uh, you look at the picture, and you're gonna post this. You're definitely gonna post this. You're gonna look at the picture, and you're gonna be like, oh man, that's so sad. That is so 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 sad. <laughs> And uh, underneath the caption of the photograph that shows what's clearly a donkey painted to look like a like a zebra, it says, "The zoo has denied that this is a painted donkey. It's a donkey. It's not even. It's not even. It's not even big enough to be a to be a zebra. It, it definitely looks look like, like a donkey. <laughs> yeah. And whoever was 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 painting this donkey to look like a zebra." It just didn't do a good job. It's like he did like a like a half job or something. It's like, oh, I don't want to paint anymore. I'm just gonna just do some stripes and all right, there's there's your zebra. And, and you can see this is the this is the other funny part. You can see in the photograph, right? You see the the donkey that's obviously a donkey painted to look like a zebra, and it's a terrible paint job. There's a tourist or somebody visiting the zoo, oh, yeah. and he's taking a picture of it, and the expression on his face is like priceless. He's oh, yeah. like like. What? Right, what? Do they actually think I'm that dumb to buy that this is a zebra, not a donkey? You gotta look at the you gotta look at the photograph. You gotta read the article. It's uh, again BBC News. It's by Mahmoud A. Saran S A R H A N. It is. Uh, it's just. It's, it, I mean, it's funny. I mean, you're gonna bust a gut laughing I'm looking sh- at. I'm right. sure we'll post it. At least people will know why we're posting it. Yeah, and oh, I love this. The zoo director, Mohammed Sultan, 
insisted the animal was not a fake. Man, if that's not a fake, that that's got to be a new species that I've never seen before. Uh-oh. I mean, that's that is so sad. That is just so sad. Oh yeah. Oh my! Just read this. I just read this. Uh, another Gi- another uh, Giza Zoo put stuffed animals on display in 2012 <laughs> to make them, you know, to pretend not not not. You know, okay, listen, listen, hold on. I have gone to zoos like the Brookfield Zoo here in Chicago or the uh, Lincoln Park Zoo in in uh, just right outside of downtown Chicago. Right. Uh, and they do have stuffed animals, but they, it's clearly said. These are stuffed animals. We're just doing reproductions. And then over there are the real animals. No, what the zoo in Egypt, in Gaza, in in, uh, in Giza was doing, just put some stuffed animals on display and said, oh, those are real animals. No, 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 they're not fake. Those are real animals. When they were clearly stuffed animals. I, I don't get that. What, what, what is that? Okay, so what's the other article here? This is the Alexandria Zoo. In 2004, the zoo lost its membership. Uh, with the World Association of Zoos and Aquariums. The zoo did not pay membership fees and then ignored recommendations of WAZA inspectors to clean up their act. As of 2010, it is a member. It is now a member of the African Association of Zoos and Aquaria and is working towards getting re-accredited with the World Association of Zoos and Aquariums. Now, wasn't it like in some kind of like very severe state of disrepair and neglect and they just weren't treating the animals good? But the reason why you sent me this article, you gotta post this article, uh, was last time I said, why do they have a zoo in Egypt when you can see the camels, the crocodiles, the lions, the snakes, the whatever, right, right in your backyard. Just go down to the to the Nile River and you want to see a crocodile, you can, you can see it there. You want to go see a, a camel, you know, that they're still using everywhere. They're there. Why would you pay an admission fee? Now... I thought, you and I thought, well, they, they got to have, like, other animals besides the animals that are just natural outside in Egypt. Well, they have, ze- uh, they have zebras. Yeah, okay. All right. Well, okay. <laughs> well, a zebra is native to Africa. Okay, maybe not in exactly that region of Africa, but it is native to Africa. But Well, it's half well, zebra, it, half donkey. Exactly. It's not even a zebra. They didn't even bother to go down to, like, the middle of Africa and That's get a- it. And bring it up. They just said, oh, we have a, a beast of burden. Let's paint it to look like a zebra. It's a zonkey. It's a zonkey. But the, the the funny thing is, is that about the Alexandria Zoo, what are the animals that it has? And the animals that it has, um, uh, where are they? They're right here. They're uh, 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 reptiles, uh, crocodiles. Hippopotamus, uh, which you forgot. I forgot the hippopotamus. Well, you know, if if I remembered, you know, Madagascar one, two, and three, I would have remembered the, the hippopotamus. Uh, they have a selection of bears. A cobra, <laughs> uh, uh, camels. Uh, I'm like, so so. How was I putting down the the zoo in Africa, um, the zoo in Egypt there, especially in Alexandria, when all the animals that it has, you could naturally see outside of the of the zoo for free now granted they might either kill you in the in the form of a of a of a cobra or a crocodile or it may just spit on you a lot you know like a camel but you know you can see those for free why do you have to have a zoo i don't get that well again they're they're leaving they're living a subsistence 
uh, lifestyle. I mean, what, what what kind of free time do they have to go see a zoo? Well, and I, I don't know if you saw this down further, and this was another reason why <laughs> it's probably not very Christian, but why I didn't feel as bad about bashing oh, them okay. a little bit. But uh, the animal welfare thing, um, in February 2015, two men entered the Alexandria Zoo and beat up baboons with sticks, and dozens of zoo-goers watched and laughed. Why were they beating up the baboons? What did the baboons do? Most of the monkeys fled to the top of the enclosure for safety. Several others endured beating by the men as people in the crowd cheered, laughed, and clapped. The two men spent a considerable amount of time in the monkey enclosure, and no security at the zoo intervened. Eventually, the men left the scene unapprehended without suffering any consequences. I don't even know how to respond to that. And the part, the best part is the, is, well, there is no best part to it, but I guess the one that's interesting is the crowd cheered, laughed, and clapped. Again, what did the baboons do? What did these, what did these Ham- Hamadrayas baboons do that deserved the beating? Yeah, and I, then everybody's clapping and cheering. Yeah, like, yeah, go get the baboons. They're in an enclosure where they can't get away. Anyway, we just wanted to bring that up to just bring some closure to the Egyptian zoo issue. What we're going to do now is we're going to uh, get into, now that we've, well, we might we might come across more about animals, but uh, we are going to get into a little bit more about the uh, land and what it's like there uh, and why so many people went there back in the day. It's happening. You know, they had low rates. So do, would you like to uh, comment on the land? Sure. Uh, you've gotten your time in making fun of the zoo so i will oh so yeah go ahead you do it i'll make fun of the land make fun of the land i'm not gonna make fun of it make fun of the land though egypt is one of the earliest countries in recorded history and as regards to its continuous civilization yet it is a late country in its geological history and in its occupation by a settled population which i thought that line was interesting. interesting. Since Egypt seems so ancient, the whole land up to Sicily. Yeah, that's good. It's almost like Sicily. But it's Sicily. The whole land up to Sicily is a thick mass of Eocene limestone, which might also have to do with why they haven't had as bad famines as other places if it's different type of land it has been elevated on the east up to the mountains of igneous rocks many thousand feet high toward the red sea it has been depressed on the west i've been kind of depressed lately too mm-hmm. um down to the Fayum and the oasis below sea level or is that oases yeah o-a-s-e-s oases um, <laughs> this strain i guess i am gonna make fun of <laughs> you the say oases <laughs> This strain resulted in a deep fault from north to south for some hundreds of miles up to the Mediterranean. This fault left its eastern side about 200 feet above its western, and into it the drainage of the plateau Plateau. plateau poured, widening it out so as to form the Nile Valley as the permanent drain of northeast Africa. The Nile Valley. The gouging out of the Nile Valley by rainfall must have continued when the land was 300 feet higher than at present, as is shown by the immense fails of strata into collapsed caverns, 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 which were far below the present Nile level. Then after the excavations of the valley, it has been submerged to 500 feet lower than at present, as is shown by the rolled gravel beds and deposits on the tops of the water-worn cliffs and the filling up of the tributary valleys as at Thebes by deep deposits through which the subsequent stream beds have been scoured out. The land still had the Nile source 30 feet higher 
than it is now within the human period, as opposed to what? The inhuman period? I don't get that. Mm -hmm. As seen by the worked flints in high gravel beds above the Nile Plain. So that's the worked flints. What is that? Like like Neolithic? Whatever? Yeah. Yeah. Hunter-gatherer. The distribution of land and water was very different from that at present, when the land was only 100 feet lower than now. means it's actually the land has gone up since then. Such a change would, would submerge much of the western desert and would unite the Gulf of Suez and the Mediterranean. Such differences would entirely alter the conditions of animal life by sea and land. And as the human period uh, began when the water was considerably higher, the conditions of climate and of life must have greatly changed in the earlier ages of man's occupation. Dun, dun, dun. Gets me is the human period. Like, what are they talking about? Like, um, period? Are they talking about the dinosaur period? Yeah, they talking yeah, about, they the, talking about the alien period because we know the aliens made the, the pyramids. Okay, that's an established fact. Okay, ancient aliens has put that to rest. Yorgos Stukalos <laughs> has already stated it. Thank you, my man. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the earliest human remains belonging to the present condition of the country are large Paleolithic flints found in the side valleys at the present level of the Nile. As they are perfectly fresh and not rolled or altered, they show that Paleolithic man lived in Egypt under the present conditions. The close of this Paleolithic age of hunters and in the beginning of a settled population of cultivators cannot have been before the drying up of the climate which by depriving the Nile of tributary streams enfeebled it so that its mud was deposited and formed a basis for agriculture. From the known rate of deposit and depth of mud soil, this change took place about 10,000 years ago. Boom, there's that magic number. As the recorded history of the country... I'm going to read that again, Snorter. Put your cocaine down. Okay. (laughs) I don't know why you have to like bust me on on the internet like that, but okay. As the recorded history of the country extends 7,500 years, and we know of two prehistoric ages before that, it is pretty well fixed that the disappearance of Paleolithic man and the beginning of the continuous civilization must have been about 9,000 to 10,000 years ago. I will tell you this. Uh, I just saw a program over the weekend. There, it was a British archaeologist went to the Giza Plateau, and from some ancient papyri, that he found. I don't know. I got in the middle of the program, so I don't know what ancient papyri it was. It made mention of the Nile being diverted away from where it was to make a stream that went right by the pyramid. So you didn't have to, like, you know, bring it from the, the quarries that were, like, miles and miles away. You could just put it on a boat and then take it down this man made stream, man made river that was within, like, I don't know, like, a few hundred feet, a few hundred yards, I should say, of the pyramids. So it made transporting the large materials of brick and so forth, right. limestone, much easier. And that was something that you know always like perplexed everybody. Like, how did they go from all of these quarries that were miles away and bring all this stuff to the pyramids? Well, it's because they found this ancient papyri, or papyri, more of them, more than one, that talked about a stream, a man-made stream that the Egyptians made by diverting the Nile's water to go right past the pyramid. And so, you know, ships could go, like, within a few yards, drop off their cargo, and then come back down. So they tested the soil, and lo and behold, like it says here, you know, uh, they found mud deposits or silt uh, deposits 
that showed that the Nile was diverted exactly where the papyri were, were telling the archaeologists um, it was diverted to, and it was right there. I mean, it, when they showed it, when they actually showed the evidence of where the the silt and the mud deposits were, of where the of this ancient tributary, this man-made tributary or stream or lake diverting the water from the uh, Nile uh, was, it was like right there. I mean, you, it was like, here's the stream, there's the pyramid. It was like perfect. You could like unload all of your material, give it to the workers, and then they, they start making the pyramid. It answered a really big question about how the Egyptians made the pyramids by transporting all of these materials that were like from, you know, miles and miles away, quarries from miles and miles away to the pyramids. So that was kind of cool. I saw that this past weekend. So that was, that was awesome. The next area that we want to get into, I guess I'll get into it, is climate, the climate of Egypt. So the climate of Egypt is unique in the world. So far as solar heat determines it, the condition is tropical, yay. For though just north of the tropic, there lies at the boundary of Egypt and Nubia, the cloudless condition fully compensates for higher latitude. So far as temperature of the air is concerned, the climate is temperate, the mean heat of, of the winter months being 52 degrees. That's not bad, 52 wow. degrees. And of the summer, about 80 degrees. Well, I don't know. Does that factor in the humidity? Because I bet you it's oppressive with the humidity. Oh, because, yeah, because of the tropical climate. Yeah. Right, right. So, so the heat could be 80 degrees, but then you add in the humidity and the pressure, and it probably like makes it feel like it's like 100 degrees or right. above 100 degrees. Yeah. Uh, although, what does it say here? much the same as Italy. Okay, well, Italy, and I can, again, speak from personal experience right across the pond there to Greece, it is very oppressive because of the humidity in many areas. Um, Rome and Athens are basically in, in, engulfed by mountains or hills, and right. so there's not a lot of circulation of air. So when it gets hot, it does get muggy, it does get very humid, and it's very oppressive. Um, that's just from personal experience. Yeah, that's, and uh, I can speak from experience in Florida that <laughs> yeah. Yeah. it's the same. Um, <laughs> I, you know what? Let me, add, I'm going to throw in a little tidbit here. Uh -oh. Okay. That there was a time in the recent recorded history, the, like the past recorded history that there was a winter so bad in Cairo and there also at the Giza plateau that they were actually selling fur coats. So now we come to the actual connections between Egypt, Abraham, and Abraham's story in the Old Testament. Uh, the migration or the movement of his family, of Abraham's family from Ur in the south of Mesopotamia up to Haran in the north, Genesis 11, 31. We've talked about Ur. We've talked about Haran. These are actual um, uh, cities, places that have uh, archaeological findings of today. All the way down to his migration into Syria and into Egypt. That's Genesis 12.5, Genesis 12.10. We've already talked about them. And that all of this, all the, this migration of Abraham and his family is something that is known of in the backdrop of earlier Semitic princes of the desert, as they were called, that would do migrations like this because they were nomadic or semi-nomadic tribes. In regards to Abraham, it looked like Abraham and his and his family, which is really like, when we say family, we're talking like an entire tribe of people, entered Egypt around the time of the Hyksos kings, about 26 BC. Hyksos is H-Y-K-S-O-S. -S. The earlier dominion 
was the 15th dynasty of Egypt, and that was followed by another movement, the 16th dynasty, about 2250 BC, which was the date of the migration of Terah from Ur. Terah, as you remember, was the father of Abraham. So this is the actual migration period. Thus, the Abrahamic family took part in the so-called Second Hyksos movement. Now, the causes of this movement, um, we read in the Old Testament that it was a call from God to Abraham to get up, leave his country, and go into the promised land. Um, however, and Jeff and, I, Jeff and I talked about this privately beforehand, you know, how do you get an entire tribe of people or a large group of people to follow you? Because in the Bible, it doesn't say that everybody had this private revelation. It was just uh, Abraham. So here's a naturalistic explanation, which still does not uh, discount the hand of God, because uh, we believe that God did all this, and God's part of the entire history of this area, in fact, of our history to the, to the modern day. Okay, but the naturalistic portion or elements that caused the migration from Ur down into Canaan and then down into Egypt. The causes of these tribal movements or this migration um, has been explained by, by researchers on the reoccurrence of dry periods in the Middle East. And this was specifically detailed in the Royal Geographic Society edition of May 26, 1910, under the title The Pulse of Asia. Such lack of rain forces desert people onto the cultivated lands, and then later famines are recorded. So you have famines, migrations, people getting into more cultivated lands, tropical lands, so they could survive for their cattle and closer to water sources and so on. So as soon as Abram moved into Syria, a famine pushed him out of Syria and into Egypt, Genesis 12.10. To this succeeded other famines in Canaan that we read in Genesis 26.1, and later in both Canaan and Egypt, Genesis 41.56, Genesis 43.1, and Genesis 47.13. Those are the entire passages of Joseph and his brothers and how Joseph had the dream and about a coming famine and how he was to uh, you know store up grain and other provisions so that the people of Egypt could uh, weather the famine. What we see here is that we have archaeological, linguistic, and historical records that actually link up to what's happening in the Bible from Genesis 11, 12, 26, 41 that are telling us that this actually happened. We'll move on to the writing now, and I will read the writing stuff, because in this part right here, I think uh, because of Pete's knowledge, he is probably going to do better at commenting on, on the stuff than, than the reading. Otherwise, he'll be, manip he'll be uh, monopolizing the whole monopolizing, thing. Monopolizing and manipulating. Monopolizing yes. and manipulating, and other M words. The writing was at first ideographic, using a symbol for each word. Gradually signed were used phonetically. The symbol or some emblem of the idea of the word continued to be added to it. From syllabic signs, early alphabetical signs were produced by clipping and decay, so that by 1000 to 500 BC, the writing was almost alphabetic. After it became modified by the influence of the short Greek alphabet, Pete's always bringing the Greek back into it. Um, yay, yay. <laughs> until by 200 AD, it was expressed in Greek letters with a few extra signs. The actual signs used were elaborate pictures of the objects in the early times, and even down to the later periods, very detailed signs were carved for monumental purposes. But as early as the first dynasty, a much more simplified current hand had been started. And before Pete 
comments. I did want to say that, well, you know, Pete, Pete likes comics too. Comics, which love comics, which are really a sequential art form, actually traced back to Egyptian hieroglyphs and things like that. Mm, you got a little M. Night Shyamalan on this there. Okay. By the time that you get to Alexander the Great and you had Greek taking over the main Egyptian language, which was still hieroglyphic at that point, which is, you know, shapes images to represent thoughts and ideas. And this ties into education. The vast majority of people were uneducated. The vast majority of people didn't go through an educational, a structured, systematic educational system. So there was a time and a purpose for hieroglyphs because you could figure it out. You know, everybody could figure out, you know, a cow in a field or a, or a guy in a boat or, you know, a man out in his, you know, pasture or whatever. Those were symbolic representations that people could figure out. As civilization got more and more advanced, progressed, quote unquote, civilized, more abstract ideas started to come in, you know, uh, whether they were religious, philosophical, metaphysical. How do you express a philosophical thought in a picture? You can't. So you needed to have a more expressive language. And so what happened was is that when the, the, the Hellenistic period came in through Alexander the Great and then the rise of the Ptolemaic dynasty, Greek, which was an alphabet language, came in and filled that need to express these abstract thoughts, philosophical, religious, metaphysical, etc. Also legal. Remember, there's a, there was a whole cachet of clay tablets and, and also uh, papyri, you know, just that were just documents. You know, contracts, everyday dealings, letters between people. You can't really do that with hieroglyphics so much. So when Greek was introduced, the expansion of human thought in Egypt and in the Middle East really accelerated at that point. But Coptic is still a spoken language. And, you know, how do you now have Egyptian trying to express philosophical, metaphysical, and religious thought, especially Christian thought, the Egyptian people after the time of, of Christ's resurrection, were greatly converted to the Christian faith. Still a Christian people to this day, as, as far as the Coptic people are concerned. But how do you express these theological ideals, ideas with hieroglyphics? Well, you can't. But you can through Greek. But how do you also keep your language while at the same time expressing these ideas? Well, you take the spoken Egyptian language and you fit it with the Greek alphabet. Most of Coptic is the Greek language or the Greek letters. There's probably three or four alphabetical symbols that are not from the Greek language that the, the Egyptians themselves came up with. But now you have a full alphabet. Now that we've given you some, some setups and, and backgrounds of the patriarchal era and, and how that's tied into Asia Minor, the Middle East, Egypt, the, now we can get into the, even more of a connection with the Bible. So what we have here now is Genesis 12:10, where it states, Now there was a famine in the land of Canaan, and Abram went down into Egypt to sojourn there. So this kind of ties into, actually it does tie into what we read before about the naturalistic elements about the dry seasons, famines hitting, and, you know, Abram and his tribe, his family, moving into Egypt to find better lands, better pasture, uh, better water supplies or access to water supplies, etc. Few events in the history of mankind are more interesting than the visit which the author of the Pentateuch thus places before us in less than a dozen words, i.e. Moses. The father of the faithful, the great apostle of monotheism, the wanderer from the distant 
Ur of the Chaldees, familiar with Babylonian greatness and Babylonian dissoluteness and Babylonian despotism, having quit his city home and adopted the simple habits of a Syrian nomadic sheik. Okay, finds himself forced to make acquaintance with a second form of civilization, a second great organized monarchy, and to become for a time a traveler or sojourner among the people who had held for centuries the valley of the Nile, meaning Egypt. He had obeyed the call which took him from his home in Ur to the city of Haran, and from Haran to Damascus, and from Damascus to the hills of Canaan. He had divorced himself from city life and city usages. He had embraced the delights of that free, wandering existence, which has at all times so singular a charm for many. Mm, okay, yeah, go wandering through the yeah, desert. I, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. And had dwelt for we know not how many years in different parts of Palestine, uh, i.e. Israel, the chief of a tribe rich in flocks and herds moving with them from place to place as the fancy took him. Well, I don't know about that, but okay. <laughs> as the fancy took him. Well, you know, it's not fancy. It's like, you know, either one, God tells me to go, or two, I got to go where my, wherever my sheep are going to be able to pasture and, and I'm close to a water supply. It was assuredly with much reluctance that he quit the open downs and fresh breezes and oak groves of Canaan, the land promised to him and to his seed after him, and took his way through the desert of the south to the great kingdom, which he and his race could never hope to be on terms of solid friendship. Okay, well, I don't know, I don't know about that because <laughs> that that kind of contradicts what what happened with Joseph. Yeah, this <laughs> you is... know, becoming the second in command of Egypt. Okay, anyway, there was in ancient times but one resource. Egypt was known as a land of plenty. Whether it were Hebrew nomads or Hittite warriors or Phoenician traders that suffered, Egypt was the sole refuge, the sole hope. There were granaries and storehouses and an old established system whereby corn was laid up as a reserve in cases of need, both by private individuals of the wealthier classes and by the kings. Well, that kind of sounds like the Joseph story to me, but okay. Right. Uh, there among the highest officers of state was the steward of the public granary. Isn't that Joseph? That's Joseph, uh, whose business it was when famine pressed to provide so far as was possible, both for natives and foreigners, alleviating the distress of all while safeguarding, of course, the king's interest. Abraham, therefore, when he found that the famine was grievous in the land of Canaan, winded his way through the desert to the Egyptian frontier. A few years later, we find him at the head of a body of 318 men capable of bearing arms, trained servants born in his house, which implies the headship over a tribe of at least 1,200 persons. He can scarcely have entered Egypt with a much smaller number. It was before his separation from his nephew Lot, followers were not much fewer than his own, and to leave any of his dependents behind would have been to leave them to starvation. The desert journey would be trying and probably entail much loss, especially of the cattle and beasts, but at length, on the seventh or eighth day, as the water was getting low in the skins and the camels were beginning to faint and groan with the scant fare 
and the long travel, a dark low line would appear upon the edge of the horizon in front, and soon the line would deepen into a delicate fringe, sparkling here and there as though it were sewn with diamonds. This is very poetic, by the way. I don't know who wrote this, but it's very poetic. <laughs> then it would be recognized that there lay before the travelers the fields and gardens and palaces and obelisks of Egypt, the broad flood and rich plain of the Nile. I'm going to start doing my, my deep... Yeah. And their hearts would leap with joy and lift themselves up in thanksgiving to the Most High, who had brought them through the great and terrible wilderness to a land of plenty. <laughs> but now a fresh anxiety fell upon the spirit of the chief. Who's that? Abraham? Uh, okay. Tradition tells us that already in Babylon, he had experience of the violence and tyranny of earthly potentates and had with difficulty escaped from an attempt which the king of Babylon made upon his life. I think this ties into like a lot of that uh, extra biblical material that we're reading about Abraham. Either memory recalled this and similar dangers or reason suggested that the unbridled license of irresponsible power might conceive and execute under the circumstances. The pharaohs had already departed from the simple manners of earlier times when each prince was contented with a single wife and had substituted for the primitive law of monogamy that corrupt system of harem life which has kept its ground in the east from an ancient date to the present. Abraham was aware of this, and as he was come near to enter into Egypt, he was seized with a great fear. Behold, he said to Sarai, his wife, Behold now, I know that thou art a fair woman to look upon. Therefore it shall come to pass, when the Egyptians shall see thee, that they shall say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will save thee alive. Under these circumstances, Abraham, with a craft not unnatural in an oriental, but certainly far from... <laughs> Amendable resolved to dissemble his relationship towards Sarah. Wow, this is like flowery language saying he's throwing Sarah under the bus, but anyway, and to represent her not as his wife, but his sister, which is not necessarily wrong. Oh, right. here, yeah. She was, in point of fact, his half-sister, as he afterwards pleaded to Abimelech, Genesis 20, verse 12. Yeah. Being the daughter of Terah by a secondary wife and married to her half-brother, say, I pray thee, he said, Thou art my sister, that it may be well with me for thy sake, and my soul shall live because of thee. <laughs> yeah, so he's trying to save his skin. <laughs> Sarah acquiesced, and no doubt the whole tribe was made acquainted with the resolution come to, so that they might all be in one story, that they can all keep their story straight, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Okay, that's great. It doesn't really make Abraham, in my opinion, look very um, yeah. patriarchal so to speak, or maybe it does make him look patriarchal if this is how the patriarchs were acting back then. Uh, uh, <laughs> <That's totally nice. laughs> not a very nice thing, but you know what? That's actually a good thing to have this type of story because, right. like we said before, the practice was to have only the good stories, not the bad stories. For more info on the Bible Dig Godcast, please visit the Bible Dig Facebook page where you'll discover a treasure trove of photos, the latest archaeology finds, and our monthly Bible study. And remember, when in doubt, just get diggy with it. From its, prox From its proximity to Syria. You gotta edit that one out. Yeah, whatever. The flints being like their tools, their weapons. Right. Because, you know, when the yes. aliens came, they had to use the natural elements that yeah, they found. They, they could fight them or, or, off that way. That's right. That's right. Go humans. Go humans.